This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. You guys, welcome to the show. Ooh, I got a hot one for you today. We are in a series right now called For the Love of What If. So what what we're doing is we're asking those what if questions. Like, let's dream about something differently that maybe at one time or another has like, maybe it's dogged our thoughts or held us back. But what if we didn't have to let like fear or shame dictate what we pursue in life, what we do next, what we do with something we've already chosen? Or what if we did pursue a thing, it didn't work, it either failed or we failed it in some way possibly, and we decided, hey, instead of just like letting that be an end of the road roadblock, what if I learned from it? So what if we have regrets about what we either did or didn't pursue and how it turned out. And we decided to make peace with those decisions and learn from them instead of like buckle down in shame. If it was possible to do these things, how would we look at our lives differently? And frankly, how would we live our lives differently? I think I think it would really change us. And I think the idea of it makes me emotional because Thinking about just shuttling our regrets around is so debilitating. And the opposite of what if we could engage in regret in a new way and we, in a way that is going to inform the what ifs in our life. I'm going to give a quick little like teaser here because my guest today literally said inside this interview, and we're, we're about to talk about regret. He's like the big four primary regrets. So really we all have, and it is ubiquitous and you'll hear about this, revolve around this idea that we have, if only, if only, if only I would have done this, if only I would have done that, if only I wouldn't have done this. And in a series called, what if having a conversation around, if only is really important to how we move forward. So honestly, like the way that we carry our regrets affects the way that we move through the world. Because depending on how we look at them, which is what we're going to examine today, regrets can either weigh 
so heavy on us. I mean, they can take us right out of the game and really never have any sort of resolution. Or according to my guest today, they don't have to. Because if we take the time to reframe this, to examine our regrets without judgment, they can and should become our teachers. They will show us what we value and the kind of life we're trying to reach for. And weirdly, regret is a gift. I know that might feel like a stretch right now, but these tie together. These absolutely tie together because regrets can be a propeller forward. In fact, my guest book today is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. So literally, this conversation belongs smack in the middle of this series. You guys, I am beyond thrilled to have writer and researcher Daniel H. Pink on the show today. Now, if you know Dan, I mean, you're just as thrilled as I am because he's one of the most fascinating thinkers today and generous. Dan is the author of seven books, mostly on human behavior, five of them New York Times bestsellers. And he is just an absolutely interesting researcher and thinker. He reminds me of some of Brene's work in that she looks at the research and the data and then applies it like to human emotion and then ultimately behavior and carves out a path forward for us in such a way that is productive, healthy, healing. And so where Brene centers her work around like vulnerability as a path forward, Daniel's work is centered around the essentially the power of regret. And that is the name of his book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. It's I realize this feels like a lot just to take on on a regular old day in January, but this is a fascinating conversation. And it will, I think it will give you permission and I think it will give you relief and I think it will give you comfort. Daniel is a fascinating guy. And what might feel kind of heavy for you as a listener at the beginning of this conversation, because regret is heavy and we have assigned a weight to it that we don't have to hang on to. There is a different way to perceive regret. And I so I hope you'll stick like beyond the initial discomfort into the like meat of this conversation because I am just buzzing from it. So Without further ado, here's my conversation with the brilliant writer and researcher, Daniel H. Pink. I am delighted to meet you. Daniel, thank you so much for being here, for being on the show. I'm telling you, I'm I'm kind of on pins and needles to have this conversation with you and to hear everything that you have to say here. Your your body of work is so interesting. So thanks for your time. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, okay. I've told my listeners who don't already know a little bit about you, but before we sort of drill down into the power of regret, I'd like, if you don't mind, just for a minute, if you would tell us more, because you have put the most fascinating body of work into the world, including your past life as a chief speechwriter for Al Gore. I mean, you've got an interesting resume, sir, an interesting path, and it kind of is all over the place. And so can you tell, can you tell us a little bit about you, kind of where you are in the world? Obviously, you are a writer, but kind of your path through these various genres and even whole careers and kind of what brought you to where you are today? All right. So an easy first question, sure. Jen. Thanks. So <laughs> to make a very long story short, I grew up in central Ohio. I went to college 
I was always a pretty good student. I was also, you know, middle class kid on financial aid, so I wasn't going to do anything too crazy. So I went to law school. Uh, I decided I was really interested in politics at the time. So obviously, law school is a pretty obvious path. I didn't really love it, knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. So upon graduating from law school, piled with debt, I started working in politics. I eventually became a speechwriter, not through any planning, but because at one point, some year, someone turned to me and said, hey, can you write a speech? And I said, yep. And <laughs> if, I can just stop for, if I can just stop for a moment there and just double click on that, I actually think that's pretty good life advice. It's life advice that I've given to my own kid. So there's a, there are going to be points, especially for the young people who are listening, and even for the not so young people, there are going to be moments when someone's going to look around and someone's going to ask you, can you? And the answer, your default answer to that question is yes. Say yes, and then figure it out. And that was the case for me. So I became a speechwriter, realized I didn't want to work in politics, realized that at, at some level, you know, after a few years of, you know, very, very interesting jobs and working with people I really liked, I was always, quote unquote, writing on the side, writing articles, columns, things like that. And so in a completely squiggly, nonlinear way in my early 30s, I quit. My wife did not quit her job. She did not leave her salary. She did not leave her health insurance. I went up to the third floor of our house, little house in Washington, D.C., and said, I'm going to take a couple of years and see if I can do my own writing. And that was 20 plus years ago. And, you know, I wake up every day and try to make it work. What was the first swing you took at your own writing? I mean, that was years ago. I mean, I, you know, even before I was, quote unquote, a professional, I mean, I was, you, you know, when you're like, OK, fingers on keyboard, I'm writing for myself now. I'm on the third floor. We have health insurance. Oh, at that point, yeah, at, that, at point, that point, exactly. You know what? OK, at that point, the first big piece that I did there was I basically wrote about myself. Sure. You're an expert on the subject. What I ended up doing and ended up becoming my first book is that I realized there were a lot of people like me who were leaving jobs or being forced out of jobs. And we're going out on their own. This is in the fairly early days of the internet. And so I wrote a big story about that that turned into my first book. And so, you know, again, I'm always looking for, you know, I don't want to be overly didactic to your listeners, but I do think that one can listen to the stories of other people. And if they have a little bit of mileage on them, as I do, they can stop and say, what are the lessons anybody can learn from this? And one of the lessons, if you'll indulge me here for a moment, is that I always said, in, in response to your question, I, I said, I think more than once, I was always quote unquote writing on the side. That is, I had other jobs. I had real jobs. But on the side, I was writing op-eds. I was writing columns. I was writing magazine articles. When I was in law school, you know, I wrote many, many op-eds for the Hartford Current. I probably wrote more op-eds for the Hartford Current than I did law school, law school papers. You know, And I think it's important to sort of, as a way to understand ourselves, is not to say you know what your what's your passion, but to actually just say what do you do, what do you do when nobody's watching, what do you do because it's who you are. And it took me a while, Jen. It took me a while to realize like, hey, wait a second, I think I'm a writer, and that's not something that I set out to do. If you had asked me when I was, whatever, 18 years old, you know, oh, you're going to end up being a writer, I would say eh, maybe, but probably not. It just sort of it turns out that's what I did. That's who I was. Mm, I love that answer. I think we would find our path a lot sooner if we asked that question, even of ourselves, that Absolutely. we find I agree. sometimes a different answer than what it is we're doing nine to five shows up. Absolutely. I also think, I think it's a great point that you make. And I, and I also think it's a way that we can provide a service to other people. That is one of the things that I, 
I find is useful to people in helping them is being actually less kind of directive than I have been being, you know, in, in saying, here's the lesson to learn from that. But simply to look at people, listen to them and say, here's what I hear you saying, or here's what I see you doing and reflect that back to them so they can draw their conclusions about what they do and who they are. That's so great. I'm practicing that in real time right now with my young adult kids who are sorting this out, really. Like, I've got this degree. Which parts of it do I love? Which parts am I discovering that I don't? And I think those are really like lovely questions to ask of ourselves and the people that we love too. Sometimes other people see in me with crystal clear eyes what I cannot see in myself. And so Bingo. you make a great point. How old are your kids? I've got 24, 22, 20, 19, 16. <laughs> so many. Okay, so we're we're similarly situated, except that you have me. If we were to play basketball, you would have a five-on-three fast break all yeah, the time. I don't even so, need to sub. So I would have to recruit some neighbors to get to five-on-five. To five. <laughs> I think it's important, the stories that we tell our kids and the stories that we tell people that age. I think a lot of times people that age look at folks in their 40s or 50s and and say, wow, that's really cool. That person is quote unquote successful, whatever the hell that means. And they think that that that, that person got there in this very smooth linear path, which is almost never the, I mean, it's never the case. Yeah. It it's really very, isn't. very, very rarely the case. It's usually back and forth, up so and down, right. herky jerky. And the more they understand that, the more I think that they can figure out their path. And, and I think that those years, especially for kids who are college graduates, those years in the 20s, I mean, Meg Jay at UVA called it the defining decade. And I think that you can use that decade of their 20s. It's not, I don't mean the full 10 years, but that point in your life to ask some of these really important questions. Who am I? What do I do? What's mm. my contribution? Oh, that is fantastic advice. And it feels like a relief. I think if that was the message sort of aimed at this age group, I think they would feel less of the crushing pressure that they feel to nail their path one minute out of school and know what they're doing and have it be this straight, seamless thing. And it isn't. I I love hearing you talk about that. And I'm really excited to hear you talk about the power of regret because first of all, I mean, kudos to you for like picking a topic and a word that is so supercharged. And I was thinking this morning, getting ready for this conversation. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody talk about regret in a positive light. It is, it's a word that generally is attached to a negative connotation that we're almost not even allowed to have any, like something we've misfired. If we have regret, then something we're doing it wrong. And so you say that regret is our most misunderstood emotion. So let's just maybe start there with that foundational understanding of regret, and then we'll build on it from there. Okay, so exactly as you say, regret is an emotion. It's a feeling. It's a, it's the emotion we have when we look backward and say, "Ah, if only I hadn't done that. If only I had done that. If only I had done that thing in a different way." So it is an emotion that arises when we think about the past, wish we had done things differently or done things in a different way, and it makes us feel bad. Yeah, that's essential here. Now, that's why we try to avoid it. But here's the dirty little secret. One is that. Everybody has regrets, right? So if you feel regret, it doesn't mean that you're flawed. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It means that you are a human being. In fact, what we know from a whole pile of research here, so there's 50 or 60 years of research in social psychology, in cognitive science, in 
neuroscience, in developmental psychology, what it tells us is that regret is one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It's arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings have. It is ubiquitous in the human experience. We have piles of evidence showing that regret is omnipresent in our lives. It is everywhere. In fact, it's so prevalent, Jen, that if you lack regrets, that's probably a sign of a problem. Wow. Here's why. Mm. Oh, yeah. So there are people who don't have regrets. Five-year-olds don't have regrets because their brains haven't developed. Regret is a very complicated, sophisticated kind of emotion. It involves traveling in time in your head, negating things that really happen, you know, coming to the present. You know, it's very difficult. Five-year-olds, we know from developmental psychology, don't have that capacity for counterfactual thinking. We don't have that until we're seven, maybe even eight. So five-year-olds don't have regrets. People with certain kinds of brain damage don't have regret. So lesions in the orbital frontal cortex of their brain, certain kinds of Huntington's disease, certain kinds of Parkinson's disease, those folks often sometimes don't have regret. Sociopaths don't have regret. So, But otherwise, if you're not five years old or have brain damage or sociopath, you have regrets. Now, here's the weird thing about that, okay? So remember, so it's everywhere, but it's unpleasant. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this. Regret stinks. stinks. I don't like experiencing regret. It makes me feel bad. So there's a puzzle here. There's a puzzle. The puzzle is this. Why would something that is unpleasant be so widespread? Why would all of us regularly have this sensation that makes us feel crappy? The resolution to this riddle is actually relatively simple. Because it's useful. If we treat it right, and we haven't been treating it right. So what we have, as you were hinting before, is we have some people who ignore their regrets. They feel that stab of negativity. They put, they, they say, blah, 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 blah. No regrets, no regrets. I don't have any regrets. Da, 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 da. They're in denial. That's a bad idea. Totally. What's also a bad idea, what's arguably an even worse idea, is to wallow in your regrets, ruminate on your regrets, get captured by your regrets. The better plan, which we know from 60 years of science, is if we confront our regrets, listen to our regrets, use them as data, as information, as feedback, and draw lessons from them. And when we do that, once again, we have evidence, especially from social psychology and other fields as well, that if you deal with your regrets properly... You can become a better negotiator. You can become a better problem solver. You can become a better strategist. You can find more meaning in life. You can become a clearer thinker. That actually processing our regrets in a healthy way is powerful. It is transformative. It can be an engine for learning and growth if we do it right. That's so good. That's such a healthy lens. And when you say it like that, I go, yeah, this makes clear sense. And our instinct to resist and reject regret is against our better interests, obviously. Well said. Yes. That's exactly right. That's a really good way to put it. I mean, it really is that our instincts of what to do are not in our best interest. Our instincts are wrong. Now, and that's and this goes to some other, you know, what we know about sort of instincts and intuition is sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong. And this is a case where our instincts are leading us away from our best interest. Brilliantly said. That's exactly what it was. And so what we have to do is we have to resist our instincts and think and listen to what the evidence tells us. And in a systematic way, if we look at our regrets square, here's the thing. We have this idea 
that saying I don't have any regrets is a sign of courage. That's right. Right. It's performative. Yeah. That's nonsense. All right. That's not courage. Courage is looking your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. And again, once again, we have this is not some kind of exhortation. This is not me trying to pump people up. We have science on this. We have a half century of evidence showing that if we process our regrets in a systematic, intelligent way, don't ignore them, don't get wigged out by them, but listen to them, they can make us better. It's so good. This reminds me of how a lot of us felt when we were first introduced to some of Brene Brown's work. And she was just simply urging us based on nothing else than data, data and research, that vulnerability was the key. That was the path forward. And Amen. we decided, well, that's the worst thing I ever heard. Because the discomfort is such a deterrent, as is regret. Exactly. It's, it's uncomfortable. And we're just, exactly. because we live these cushy Western lives, we get to not have discomfort if we don't want it. We can opt out of some forms of discomfort because we're not survivalists. Like we can pick the better parts of the story. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. And hang on to that. And so it's interesting to steer into the research. And I want to ask you about that because you used the largest sampling of American attitudes on regret that's, I think, ever been conducted. And so that, first of all, whoa. Second of all, I'd like to hear a couple of the more interesting or eye-opening things that you learned from that research that maybe were, were either surprising or really like some anchoring data for this whole body of work here. Sure thing. Let me take a step back. So the, all the claims that I'm making here are, are rest on three legs, stand on three legs of a stool. One of them is, again, research that other people have done. Again, we have scientists who have studied this emotion for a half century, and we they know a lot. They've told us a lot about how this emotion works. Second, as you, as you mentioned, I did a very large public opinion survey, as you say, the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted. Working with a company called Qualtrics, we, we did a survey of 4,489 Americans, modeled the sample so that it represented the glorious diversity of the United States. That's number two. And number three, I also did another piece of independent research called the World Regret Survey, where we just simply have invited people around the world to submit a big regret. That's interesting. And there we have there we have a database now of over of about 24,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. So I'm basing this on like on evidence and on facts. Now, on the American Regret Project, that public opinion survey, pretty complicated and expensive undertaking. And I did it 
such a large sample because I was looking for demographic differences. Do African-Americans have different regrets than white Americans? Do women have different regrets than, than men? And do people with lots of formal education have different regrets than people with less formal education? And what I found is that there were not that many demographic differences. That's interesting. I know, I know, I know. It was like, but I'll, I'll give you two, the two, I think the two most salient things that I found in that research. Number one is that I asked people, I asked people a question. I, I said something like, how often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? Now, I'm describing regret, but not using the R word. Because it is, as you put it a, a moment ago, it is so charged, okay? I didn't want to get into this. There's this kind of no regrets fog machine out there. I wanted to bypass it. So I described the emotion without labeling it regret. And what we found in the sample of Americans is that 83% of people said they experienced this at least occasionally. Okay. That's pretty high. So, so we have, you know, essentially seven out of eight Americans experience this at least occasionally. The number of people, when I, when I didn't use the word regret, the number of people who said they never experienced this was 1%. Wow. Okay. And then we had something like, I think it was like 12% said rarely. So we have that. So, so basically it's, it's further confirmation that this emotion is ubiquitous. Now, demographic differences were not that great. Believe me. You know, it's like this old line about you want to, you want to torture the data until it confesses. And I tried that. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. There were very few demo, significant demographic differences. There were a few that was sort of mildly interesting, but not that big of a deal. There, but there was one demographic difference that I thought was fascinating and I think hugely important and probably relevant to your listeners, and it was this. When we think about the architecture of regret, the broad architecture, okay, there are two kinds of regret, broadly. Regrets of action, I regret what I did, and regrets of inaction, I regret what I didn't do. I wish I Yep. Exactly. I, I regret something that I did. I bullied somebody and I feel bad about that and I regret it. Or I regret about what I didn't do. I didn't start a business. I didn't ask Murray out on a date. Okay. So what we find is that there's a big age difference here. In our 20s, in our 20s, we tend to have equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction, equal numbers of regrets about what we did and what we didn't do. But as we age, into our 30s already, certainly 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it's not even close. The inaction regrets outnumber the action regrets by a wide margin. Wow. Two to Mm. one, three to one. Over time, what sticks with us are regrets about what we didn't do. We didn't reach out to that friend. We didn't ask that person out on a date. We didn't start a business. We didn't speak up. We didn't take that trip. That's what really, really sticks with us. The two biggest findings from that American Regret Project were one, the ubiquity of regret, and number two, the age effect on inaction regrets. That's so interesting. Kind of as a leader of my community, I find myself immediately wanting to parse out that analysis into forward motion that these are the days of our lives. And I, I find that so fascinating and true. Like when you're saying it, I'm 48 and I'm thinking I'm rolling through my Rolodex. I'm like, Hmm. Yep. Yep. That all feels true. I'm curious. And if this is just, if you're like, look, I am a researcher. I am not a personal person to discuss this, but as you worked through this material, 
all the data, and then obviously like the writing project, did you sort of come face to face in a new way with a specific regret of your own? Of course, yeah. I mean, my regrets were an impetus for this whole project. The reason I started working on this topic was because I had regrets of my own. I was at a point in my life where, you know, that 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 some of us have, some of your listeners might have have already reached some of them. I guarantee, I hope that you you will reach it because it is that you look up one day and realize that you have mileage on you. You realize that you have room to look back. You realize that you are no longer the youngest person in the room, but one of the oldest people in the room. You realize that 20 years ago, 25 years ago was a blink of an eye. And when you look back at, because you're a human being, you have regrets. There are things you wish you had done. There are things you wish you hadn't done. There are things you wish you had done differently. And it makes you feel bad. I was at a point where I was reckoning with those. I wasn't tortured by them at all. I wasn't brought down by them, but I was bothered by them. Yet again, exactly as you said at the beginning, Jen, I knew that nobody wanted to talk about regrets. So it's like, okay, I'm I'm not going to talk about this. But then, you know, against my better judgment, I very sheepishly began talking about it with a few people. And I discovered that everybody wanted to talk about regrets. Once I mentioned mine, the floodgates opened and everybody wanted to talk about it. You know, and that took me off on this, on this, on this journey. So I have a lot of regrets. Not, not, not a huge number of regrets, but I have regrets about not being bold enough. One of the biggest regrets I have is regrets about kindness. Oh, interesting. Where when I was much younger, you know, in this giant, just to give you some background, in this giant database of of regrets that I have, there are, are you know a decent number of regrets that people have about bullying other people. I bullied somebody when I was in high school. I bullied somebody when I was in junior high, whatever. I wasn't that. That's not my regret. But I was in many situations when I was much younger, you know, high school, college, even beyond, where I was in situations where people were simply not being treated right. They were not being treated fairly. They were being excluded. And I saw it. I knew it was wrong. And I didn't say anything or do anything. And that has bothered me for decades. And so the question then becomes, what do I do with that nasty feeling? I can say, it doesn't matter. Always be positive. Never look back. That's a bad idea. I can say, oh my God, I am the worst person in the world. I am horrible. I'm just a worthless, wretched human being. That's a bad idea too. What I can do is say, wait a second. Something that, in this case, it was an inaction. Something that I didn't do, what is it now, like 30 years ago? multiple times, 30 years ago, still bugs me. It's like, I've made so many decisions in the last week, most of which I don't remember. But there were decisions and indecisions and actions that happened three decades ago that not only I remember, but that bother me. That's a very strong signal. And it's a signal that gives me two pieces of data. One, it's a signal about what I value. Okay, this is really important. Regret clarifies what we value. You're right. And what that regret says Mm -hmm. to me is that I value kindness more than I might realize consciously that I value kindness. Number two, it instructs me. It instructs me on how to do better. And so I don't want that feeling again. And so if I process that feeling and draw a lesson from it, I say, you know what? I need to be more inclusive. I need to. Speak up if someone is not being treated right. I need, if I see something wrong, I need to say something and not just passively let it go. And so it, so that regret clarifies what I value. 
and instructs me on how to do better. And that is what one of the many things that regret does for us. In addition to finding sort of the broad two categories, regret for action and regret for inaction. Did you find any, like, as as you drilled down a little bit into people's individual personal regrets, did you find a handful or whatever of really common regrets? What were they? So so in the World Regret Project, and forgive me for making this more confusing than it should be, but basically, so so what we had is we had this public opinion survey. And then we also just had this thing, worldregretsurvey.com. You can find it online. You can You can go to our interactive map and see... You know, what are the last four or five regrets from people in Oklahoma or in Argentina or whatever? What we found is around the world, people seem to have the same four core regrets. One was what I call foundation regrets. These are regrets that people have about small decisions early in life that accumulate to negative consequences later. I spent too much and saved too little. I didn't take care of my health. Now I'm woefully out of shape and unhealthy. Second one is boldness regrets. All right. You're at a, you had a moment in your life where you could play it safe or take the chance. And when people don't take the chance, not all the time, but most of the time, they regret it. And this this is about you know some of the things I mentioned before. It's lots of regrets about not starting businesses, not asking people out on a date, not speaking up, not trying stuff, not traveling, those kinds of things. So basically playing it safe when you could have been bold. Third category are moral regrets, which is where those bullying regrets come in. These are people who, you know, again, were at a juncture in their life. They could do the right thing or they could do the wrong thing based on their own moral code. They do the wrong thing. They regret it. Not everybody, but almost everybody. So it's bullying, cheating, marital infidelity, lying, those kinds of things. And finally, number four are connection regrets, which are about relationships. And not only romantic relationships, in fact, mostly not romantic relationships. Most of the regrets about romantic relationships were about bad choices. Whereas the bigger category were these connection regrets, where basically people had a relationship that was intact or should have been intact, comes apart, usually in undramatic ways. People want to reach out, but they say, oh, it's going to be really awkward if I reach out and the other side's not going to care. So they don't. And the drift widens. And then sometimes it's too late. And so, so what we got is we have, you know, we can think about, we can phrase all of these as, as if only, because that's the catchphrase of regret. Foundation regrets, if only I'd done the work. Boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. More regrets, if only I'd done the right thing. And connection regrets, if only I'd reached out. And around the world, those seem to be the four most prevalent types of regret. There's a lot of shame baked into this conversation because we are exactly. ashamed of what we chose, whatever it was, whether it was action or inaction. And shame is just a deterrent. I mean, it is so uncomfortable. And so I like that your work probably, do you go on to parse out like, here's how we sit in the pocket of these feelings. Instead of just miring in shame, which is just, that'd be my, that's our first reach for most of these really big regrets. How do you instruct us to take a little bit more of a a learner's approach to that discomfort? How can it be our teacher instead of just our, like our ruler on the hand, none? Tormentor. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have research on this. That's the thing. It's like, we know how to do this. Just no one's ever taught us how. And so the way I like to look at it is in, is, is a three-part process that we can think of as inward, outward, forward. Okay. So you have to look inward. So inward is basically, how do we think about the regret and ourselves? This is the, the fundamentally the most important step, which is that when we make mistakes, when we screw up, when we, you know, blunder, 
the way that we talk to ourselves is ridiculous. It's harsh. It is brutal. And so what the science tells us is don't do that. In fact, that science comes from your neck of the woods, Jen. It comes from Kristen Neff at the University of Texas. She's brilliant. Compassion. Just absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Some of the most important, some of the most important work your listeners can 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 encounter. And so basically what it says is that at first we should treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. Okay. So we should treat ourselves not better than anybody else, but not worse than anybody else. There's no evidence that that lacerating self-criticism is effective. It's not. Second, what we should do is we, so this is the inward. What we should also do is recognize that we're not that special, that everybody has regrets, that regrets are part, mistakes, regrets are part of the human condition. We tend to think somehow we're singular, that we're the, like, you know, I might, and I did, you know, when I think about the, the regret, the, the sort of the, what I always thought of, it's like, oh, this bizarre inaction kindness regret. So singular, it's so unique. Every time, you know, I mentioned before people, oh my God, that same thing with me. Totally. And it's like, you know, of course. So they're part of the human condition. And the other thing that I think is really important is recognizing that these mistakes, these, these, these moments, these, these mistakes, these screw ups, these regrets are a moment in our lives, not the full measure of our life. And once we do that, that opens the way for the outward. And the outward says, it's actually important to talk about this stuff, to write about this stuff, to express it. It is an unburdening. As you mentioned, so when we talk about our regrets, it's an unburdening. It's we lift the weight. You mentioned the Brene stuff on on vulnerability. One of the insights there is that we fear that when we are vulnerable, people will think less of us. When in fact, they think more of us. And not every single time, but a lot of the time. Same thing is true with regrets. We think that revealing our regrets and our mistakes, people will think less of us. They actually think more of us. Not all the time, but a lot of the time, as I said. And then also the other thing is that writing, talking about our regrets transforms them. Our emotions are vaporous. They're, they're abstract. When we write about our negative emotions, talk about our negative emotions, we make them concrete and that makes them less fearsome. So we've treated ourselves with comp- kindness rather than contempt. We've written about them or talked about them. So one very specific thing you can do is like write about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days. That's it. Even that, there's some evidence that that is actually an effective technique. And then finally, what we have to do is we have to draw a lesson from them. That's how we move forward. We can't just stop there. We have to say, what did I learn from this? And what does it teach me? And so, and that, and to do that, it often is helpful to take a step back, do some self-distancing and, you know, say, imagine if a friend of mine came to me with this regret, what would I tell him or her to do? So we treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. We talk about it or write about it to defang it. And then we explicitly draw a lesson from it and apply that lesson going forward. And when we do that, regret is useful. It's a tool. It's not a burden. Mm, That's so hopeful. That's so incredibly hopeful. And I'm thinking about how many people are just sitting in decades old regret, decades old. Like I like what you said earlier pay attention to what hangs on. It's a, it's a clue that is a message telling us there is something here to like address and deal with. And there's a way through it. We don't have to sit in the seat of shame and regret with absolutely no like resolution or comfort or change at all. Like this isn't, what's been the response to this book in the world. I'm very curious how your readers have, what are you hearing? You've got to feel thrilled about people breaking chains, essentially, that have kind of held them for however long of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten some pretty incredible, I've gotten some pretty incredible email from 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 readers, especially on these connection regrets, because mm, totally. one of the things about these connection regrets is that, let's say that I have an old friend named Bonnie. Let's say I haven't talked to Bonnie for 10 years. 
And I think to myself, oh, I should really reach out to Bonnie. We were friends 10 years ago. But we haven't talked for a while, but oh, so awkward because we haven't talked for 10 years. And besides, she's not going to care. So what happens? I don't do it. And then I wait uh, two more years and I say, oh, you know, I really should reach out to Bonnie. And I'm like, oh, no. And now it's been 12 years. It's even more awkward. And she's, all right, that's a huge mistake. Basically, what the research, what this tells us is that if you're at a juncture where, at least for me, I'll, I'll give you the lesson I derived from this. If you're at a juncture and you're wondering, should I reach out or should I not reach out? Being at that juncture has answered the question. That's Always reach good. out. That's but great. What the research tells us and what our lived experience tells us is that when we reach out, it's way, way, way less awkward than we think. It's often not awkward at all. Second, the other side almost always cares. They almost always welcome it. And so what I have seen, this is a roundabout way to answer your simple question, which is that the, a lot of the emails that I've gotten from readers have been, I read this thing and I realized like I was really awkward about reaching out to John, who I haven't talked to for eight years, and I reached out to him and we reconnected. I have so many emails like you must. That. I did a TV interview about this literally last week where I don't want to say the, the person's name, but, but a pretty well-known TV personality. A very well, I think one of America's great broadcasters in my mind told me that she had read the book and reached out to somebody. So I think that that's one of the I think that's one of the things. It's I think amazing. the other thing that I, the other response that I'm getting is that people are realizing that they're not alone. They look at these regrets, and you know we have all kinds. The, the book is filled with all kinds of regrets that people have that I've collected from all over the world, and they go, mm, that's me. I ah, totally. see myself in there. Absolutely. So they realize that they're they're not alone. Yeah, so, that alone takes away some of the shame. A lot of these live in secrecy in our minds and hearts. So thus, it's very isolating just by virtue of keeping that a lid on it and feeling kind of alone in a choice you made one way or another. Absolutely. That's a great point too. And you, you use this word a couple of times and I want to sort of go, go to it because I think it's so essential to all of this. You use the word shame. And, and shame is, a, is very dangerous. Shame is insidious. It's not like regret, which can be you can actually approach in a way that is useful to you. Shame is, shame is different. To oversimplify just a bit, okay, we think about something like shame and something like guilt, all right? Guilt is, and maybe my regret about kindness is, is, is about guilt, right? Guilt is, I did a bad thing. Shame is, I'm a bad person. And when we make those universal attributions about who we are, that is devastating. It sure what is. What we need to do on so many different levels in our lives is evaluate the act, not make universal attributions about the person. And shame is, a, is an attribution about the person. Shame is, I'm a bad person. That's a very different, that's very, and when you're a bad person, you are irredeemable. When you've done a bad thing, you, there is redemption possible. Oh, it's so important, that distinction. There's so much possibility on the other side of just using regret as a tool, as opposed to letting it metastasize as shame. Yes. That is so corrosive exactly, and exactly. so hard and that's to a good, That's from. a good metaphor for that because it basically, it sits and it the cells multiply and it starts eating away. This is amazing. I just absolutely commend you for tackling a subject that is 
I mean, that's not what we all like. What do we want to talk about guys around the dinner table? Let's talk about regrets. Like you picked it, you picked a big one. And, and yet there's so much like possibility and comfort and hope baked into your work. And so I'm just thrilled. Well, don't, don't underestimate how much people do want to talk about this. I'll give you again, another You're feedback right. is that I have, especially it's weird. I, I wasn't expect this from businesses, from like business leaders, bosses, essentially who's saying, Hey, you know what? I read this. I was pretty skeptical of this whole regret thing. It's like, I don't want to deal with this. And yet I read it and I was sort of convinced. And so in my next, you know, I had a meeting with my team and I told them about a regret that I had and I told them what I learned from it. And I told them how it instructed me to do better. And we ended up with the most useful conversation we've had in my company in the last 12 years. I love this. You know, so people do, you know, people are willing to, you have to talk about it the right way. You know, what you have to do is you have to, and, and, and we can do that. You can do it around the dinner table. You can do it around in a meeting. You say, here's a regret that I have. Here's what I learned from it. And here's what I'm going to do about it. If you just say, here's a regret that I have. Isn't that awful? Aren't I terrible? That's not very useful. Totally. <laughs> yes. If you say, here's a regret that I have. Here's what I learned from it. And here's what I'm going to do about it. It's very helpful. And even with even parents, kids can learn a lot from their parents' honest reckonings with their own shortcomings and their own mistakes. So true. If you just could even know that that has literally been my last two days with my kids is me coming to them saying, this is something that I wish I would have done differently. I think I liked a word you used really early on, something about just like peeling it back facing it, saying it out loud, using it as a tool, it defangs the whole thing, which is a word you said. And I like, yeah, yeah. In That's our- what it is. I'm going to you know, give a hat tip to the, to the Longhorns down there is that some of the other research on writing about these kinds of things comes from Jimmy Pennebaker at the University of Texas as well. So the Longhorns have, have contributed mightily to our being able to process regret and negative emotions more effectively. Listen, we have tons of regret in Texas. We are the right state for this. Like, look, let us write for the rest of time. We've got enough regret to fill the coffers. (laughs) Okay. Fantastic. I have one last question for you. And this is just everybody in the show gets this question. And I would love for you to answer it however you want to answer it. Like we, the answers run the gamut from like earnest to absurd and we and everything in between and we love them all. So it's however you feel today. I do I do absurd better than earnest, but let's see. Great. So do I. I borrowed this question from another writer and Episcopal priest, and I love her work. This is her question. What is saving your life right now? Knowing that there are people in my life whom I love and who love me. Oh, isn't it? It's everything, right? It's just everything. It's really what it all kind of boils down to. Perfect. I am absolutely delighted to have met you. And I'm so grateful, Dan, for your time and your expertise and your just open heart toward this conversation. I'm excited. I'm about to go try this out. I have a, I have a thing later today. I'm going to try this. I'm going to see how it works. I'm going to let you know, cause I've got your cell number. Lay it on me. Yeah. No, let me know how it goes. Yeah, that's let right. me know how it goes. That's right. I mean, here's the thing. It's like all, like I should probably put a disclaimer, like your mileage may vary, but a lot of times I think we labor under the belief that we are somehow vastly different from other people. And we're not. We're not. We're not. I know. We're just like everybody else. And so if someone came to you and shared a regret, you would likely say one of mine, but just came, came to us. If, if, If someone came to us with a regret and said, Hey, here's a regret that I have. Here's what I learned from it. Here's what I'm going to do about it. 
99% of us wouldn't say, oh, you loser, what's wrong with you? We would say, wow, okay, I admire that. I admire that courage. I admire that keenness of mind. I admire your being a role model for how we deal with negative emotions. And so, you know, there's an old journalistic adage. I heard this years and years ago. It's like, always extrapolate from your own experience. You're not that special. <laughs> it, like, it sounds mean, except it's actually comforting. Like, look, you're it just is. a normal person having a normal human experience, like a normal adult. Bingo. That's what it is. Welcome Bingo. to the human Bingo. experience. Yes. So Amen. Great. Okay. Well, I'll have links to all your everything up for my listeners so they can find out more. Because there's a lot. We just scratched the surface. There's so much under all this to learn from and to process. And so, hey, thank you for coming on today. If you're ever in Austin, Texas, dinner on me. Fantastic. I love dinner. Yes, yes. Write it down. Barbecue. Thanks, Dan. Alrighty. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye. Okay, you guys. Incredible. Incredible conversation and so interesting. And when I tell you, we've barely scratched. Like, there's so much underneath it. Just practical, tactile elements of this conversation and then what to do with it. And so if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I will have this entire interview. I'll have all the show notes, all the stuff, all the links, and I'll put up all of Dan's stuff, his books, his website, anything that you would, you are more interested in learning about. I will I will put that into your hands because I think this has the power to change our lives. Don't you? really change our lives, literally. When he named those four categories of regret that are ubiquitous in human experience, I'm like, yep, 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 yep. If we learned from those and retooled our forward motion from those if-onlys to what now, uh, it's fascinating. Anyway, I'm so glad you're here. I think this entire series is like this. It is, for me, just impetus for like, excitement and possibility and growth. And I love it. It's really like captured my imagination and I hope it has yours too. So come back next week. We've got absolutely more to come. All right, you guys, on behalf of Laura and her crew and Amanda and I, we love you. See you next week. 